It seemed to me it was very humbly shepherded. Didn't seem like anybody was trying to work something up. The president of the school was outstanding in his modest comments. He was saying he had a team of people that were kind of carefully and prayerfully trying to shepherd this thing. And then the willingness to lavish time on God. So, you know, we have our churches today where you got these scripted worship services and you're in and out in an hour. You're never going to have revival unless that's a willingness. So that was fantastic. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. It's not uncommon to see a church sign announcing an upcoming revival. What exactly is going on at a revival? And how does a local church revival compare to what recently happened at Asbury College in Kentucky? On this Level Paths podcast, Dr. Jeff Van Gotham gives us some details about what to look for when it comes to revival with a little r or revival with a big r. Dr. Jeff is pastor of spiritual life and missions at East White Oak Baptist Church in Bloomington, Illinois. He's also an adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Also on this podcast, we'll get a first-hand account of the Asbury College revival from Dr. Matt Shamlin, who drove to Asbury to see what it was all about. Here's the president of Tri-State Bible College, Rex Howe. Welcome to the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Rex Howe. I serve as the president of Tri-State Bible College, and I'm here with my brother and partner, the Appalachian Research Fellow, Dr. Matt Shamblin. Matt, how's today going? It's going well. It's been a busy day, but uh, that's not a bad thing. A full life, brother. We have a full life, don't we? That's right. So we are uh, with a special guest today that we'll introduce in just a moment. We want to continue to share with you about our Appalachian Ministry Conference coming up on Tuesday, April 25th here at Tri-State Bible College. Each podcast, we've been talking about different uh, breakout sessions, different features of the conference. Today, I want to mention two of those. I had a conversation, Matt, with one of our breakout speakers, John Camiola. Now, John is not from Appalachia. He's probably the furthest thing from Appalachian that uh, will be at the conference. <laughs> but uh, he has an awesome story. John was raised in a mafia family. He was saved uh, and redeemed by Jesus Christ. And now he and his wife and his beautiful family, they are missionaries in Nigeria. And they work with Voice of the Martyrs in Nigeria. His wife runs Grace Gardens in Nigeria, which is a ministry that rescues women and children from sexual exploitation. But John, he works also with business for transformation. Some of us have heard as business as missions, but his is a little bit, it's a little different nuance where he's incorporating his experience in the business world to transform lives in the power of the gospel. And so it's just an amazing thing. And he's going to be leading, Matt, our session on doing business with Hope in Appalachia. And today we're with one of our other breakout session leaders, Dr. and Pastor Jeff Van Gotham. Uh, Pastor Jeff was my pastor at Schofield Memorial Church in Dallas. We were on pastoral ministry together down there for about eight years. He's currently the pastor of spiritual life and missions at East White Oak Bible Church. And he also serves as an adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. 
and he also is an adjunct professor at Word of Life in the country of Hungary. I'm so glad to have you, Jeff, because it's a moment in American church history where we're really thinking about revival. And I know revival has been a topic that you've studied in depth and across your pastoral career, across your academic career, revival has been really at the center of of a lot of your work. And so we want to spend just a minute talking about a brief history of revival in America. Now, we know there have been revivals outside of America. We acknowledge that. And those are very important to study and to know about. They honestly do impact things that have happened in America. But give us a brief history of revival in America. Give us the distinction between revival and revivalism as you do that. You know, most church historians agree there are three great revivals in American history. The first great awakening in the colonial era uh, in New England primarily, which was uh, really a movement led by pastors across many small town churches in the northeastern part of our country. Jonathan Edwards was the key figure there. And of course, uh, he left us a great deal of information about it in his writings. Others, of course, have written about it. And it was uh, characterized by a deep conviction of sin, sudden awakenings, large numbers of conversions in small towns all the way to larger towns like Boston and New York and down into Connecticut and so forth. And it was very much uh, doctrinally cohesive in the sense that Jonathan Edwards was an old Puritan, sort of Presbyterian Calvinist. And so there weren't many means or methods, just preaching, counseling with people, prayer meetings. But it was something that significantly impacted not only the churches, but also the culture of New England in those days. Now, the Second Great Awakening occurred uh, after the American Revolution, and America is now a country, and it's really a developing country. Uh, It's got a a great vision for its future. Things were changing. The country was moving westward. Around about 1800, many people trace it back to Yale, where Jonathan Edwards' grandson was the president, and he preached a series of chapel messages. About one-third of the student body was converted in 1802, And this was one of the matches that lit the fire, but there were other things that happened also. But this was a different kind of a movement. It was ebbing and flowing for perhaps three to four decades. It went further south as churches are revived and revival comes, they become much more missional and they're sending out pastors and missionaries. This led to the a log cabin movement for training pastors. There weren't enough pastors for all the churches that were springing up. And so they began to train pastors in log cabins. And it uh, infected not only the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, but also the Baptists. And they began to move south. It moved south uh, into your part of the country. It crossed the mountains there, going west, went all the way out to, you know, the frontier in those days of Indiana, Kentucky, and Illinois and so forth. But uh, it was characterized by a profound doctrinal uh, split between the old Puritan model of Jonathan Edwards and a newer model represented primarily by Charles Finney, who did not embrace Calvinism and was much more in tune with what he felt were necessary methods 
the altar call, the daily meetings, later on the camp meetings. And so you had a very powerful split in terms of the old, modest, quiet, just preaching and prayer into what you might call uh, revivalism, which is the use of techniques to get a crowd, keep a crowd, which was highly controversial. I think God moved in both wings of that Second Great Awakening. But in time, uh, Finney's methods really took hold. And a lot of uh, what we would consider methodology we see even today in terms of how meetings are, emotional appeals, doing things to get up a crowd, these things all were developed in the Second Great Awakening. Some would make a distinction between authentic revival, which is the sovereign movement of God, and then revivalism, which is the means and the methods whereby you sort of copy what happens in a revival and hope to provoke it that way. That remains, you know, a point of controversy to our day. Later on in 1858, we had the outbreak of the third great awakening in American history, often called the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1858, which started in a prayer meeting in New York City. And that was really the greatest and most powerful revival in American history. It was modest. It was led by lay people. It was primarily prayer meetings uh, in the middle of the day that initiated it, but it led to sweeping historic numbers of conversions. It was interdenominational. It spread into the major cities going across the country from New York City to Albany to Buffalo to Chicago, to Denver, all the way to San Francisco. It led to 40 years of expansion in every American denomination, if you can imagine that. I mean, today we've been living through a period of probably 30 to 40 years of decline in every American denomination, but this was really something. It led to the founding of schools. It led to the student volunteer movement, the missionary sending movement. We lived off the wave of that for many, many, many decades in American history. There were some other outbreaks, 1904, 1905, corresponding to the years of the Welsh revival. There was uh, a moving of the Spirit of God in the U.S., the post-World War II era, with the founding of all of the campus ministries we're familiar with, the rise of Billy Graham and personal evangelism, the 50s, the 60s, and 70s were great eras of the founding of ministries and evangelism. That kind of peaked in the 70s and then I think began to decline. And I think we've been kind of in a stagnancy or a period of decline with small outbreaks here and there. And there's this thing that happened at Asbury. These kinds of things were very common in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. In schools and churches, in camps, you would have these little touches, these outbreaks. They weren't necessarily great sovereign nationwide movements, but you had these touches, these mercy drops of revival, very common. Now, since the 80s, we haven't seen as much of it. And so we're thankful when we do see it, it gives us hope. And we're always hoping that people don't lose touch with this concept of revival. Well, Jeff, that's a very uh, interesting and, of course, broad strokes across the history of revival. We're grateful for that to help us get to what's got us talking about all of this, and that's Asbury. So a few weeks ago, when this started, 
My wife and I decided that if this was a move of God, we wanted our children to be a part of that. We wanted to see it. So Wilmore, Kentucky is a couple hours away from where we live. And so we loaded up in the van one evening and drove down to Wilmore, Kentucky, went on campus there at Asbury. And you could see as soon as you pull on the campus first, I was struck by the statue of John Wesley on a horse. That's how much of Appalachia was evangelized. And so that was a touching statue. And then you travel on down the street and there's Charles Wesley directing music. He's got a much smaller, I have to say his statue is quite a bit smaller than John Wesley's. Um, But going into the chapel, you could hear the worship from the street. You could hear the music from the street. And we went into the balcony and just sat and was there to take it in, to observe, not really to judge one way or another, just if it was a move of God, we wanted to be a part of it. And so what we witnessed was uh, people praising God. We witnessed people all around the room, either seated or standing in different ways, hands raised, just standing reverently around the room. There were people with their Bibles open, meditating on Scripture, praying. There were people down at the front the altar praying. There was not really any classic signs of charismaticism. The only one thing that I saw that could be classified more in the charismatic movement was a man quarter the way back, pulled out a shofar and blew it, but it was weird. It's like it made no sound. And almost as soon as we got there, a lady came over the microphone and she said, this is really the end of anything we've had planned until later this evening. So we'll come back at seven o'clock and they'll be preaching. And so my wife, my girls and I stayed and just continued to take it in. We had to get back. And so we didn't stay for any preaching. But what I was taken back uh, back by was there were people of all ages. Literally, I took a video and there was a lady holding an infant to elderly people, some in wheelchairs and on walkers that were there. There were thousands of people, people constantly coming in and out. And there were people that seemed as though they really wanted to see a move of God. I think uh, only time will tell if, if it's really a revival. I mean, if people walk in obedience and more people come to faith in Christ, I think we could see that as a, and we can say that, yes, that's what's happening there is a revival. But I do think that there is a move of God. I remember reading in one of the books that there's just, there was almost just unspeakable sense of God's presence there. And I think that that's very much what you could say going on at Asbury. Any pastor is going to go and try to discern what's going on. But the moment that really shifted everything for me was that there was a song. I don't remember the song. And I knew in the song, there was a verse that very much lifted up the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we got to that point, it was fairly subdued. There was no stars. There was nobody trying to take center stage, nothing like that. And when it got to the point that it spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want to say the place got rowdy, but it got a lot louder when it was, and there was a lot of cheering and uh, all that about uh, the resurrection. And I told my wife, I said, the devil doesn't cheer at the resurrection of Jesus. (laughs) Whatever has gone on at Asbury, I do believe we can say God's at work there. Of course, with all of those revivals, there have been excesses. In fact, If there was one sermon that would be the sermon of the first great awakening, of course, it would be Edward Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've heard many aspects, many sides of this. Some would say that because of the emotionalism that was going on, Edwards wrote that sermon. He held it up to his face and he read it in a monotone voice. 
I don't know if that's true or not, but what we can definitely say is Edwards did not go to great lengths of avoiding emotionalism, whether he may have of his own, that's one thing, but in his writing, uh, some of the most emotive language you will ever find in any literature is found in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so there's going to be excesses. There's going to be excesses in any revival. Maybe you could speak to that just a little bit, Jeff. But that was our experience at Asbury. You're the third person I've been able to talk to who's actually been there. And I think uh, what I'm hearing from you is similar to what I've heard from the others. And I've read, I think, probably about a dozen articles, people reporting on it, watched a couple of podcasts. But I appreciated two things. One, it seemed to me it was very humbly shepherded. Didn't seem like anybody was trying to work something up. The president of the school was outstanding in his modest comments and his quiet exhortations. It seemed like he was saying he had a team of people that were kind of carefully and prayerfully trying to shepherd this thing. And then I think the willingness to lavish time on God. This is critical. You know, we have our churches today where you got these scripted worship services and you're in and out in an hour. The willingness to lavish time on God. You're never going to have revival unless that's a willingness. So that was uh, fantastic. And studying revival, I make a distinction between what I would call a big R revival and little R revival. Big R revival being these sovereign movements that really sweep the lost up in great numbers. And you're reaping where you haven't sown and it's inexplicable and touches a nation and impacts culture. And then little r, where you do have these, uh, since every believer is uh, born again of the Spirit and has indwelled by the Holy Spirit, any believer can experience personal revival, you know, fresh obedience, confession, repentance. These kinds of things can lead a person, a family, a church, a student body, you know, a community into an experience of uh, personal revival and renewal. And sometimes big R sparks little r, you know, if it's sustained. And so I would say at Asbury, you had a case of, of little r, you know, there was an outbreak there. There was some fresh obedience. People met with God. And so, as I said before, years ago, this was fairly common in days past, and it's becoming less common, sad to say. But what we need now, I think, to do is pray for big R revival. Uh, and I'm encouraged by some reports I'm hearing that people are going out and testifying of what they experienced and it's spreading. I read a report about even a couple of secular universities, LSU and Texas A&M, who had some spontaneous outbreaks on their campuses, as well as some of the other Christian universities, something going on there. So, as you said, excesses are always a danger. I'm a little afraid that if we, you know, as Tim Keller says, revival is not the extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit. It is an intensification of the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit, which is the conviction of sin, the experience of the new birth, a massive experience of the grace of God. In the great revivals of our history, You didn't have any of this spectacular stuff or the seeking of the spectacular. All of the great uh, revivals in American history went on without these kinds of things, really. And, you know, there's going to be critics of the revival. There always has been. I've read about 
of the dozen or so articles, maybe three or four were pretty critical of what was happening there. But I think that that's always been the case. I agree with you, I think, Matt, and I appreciate your personal perspective on it because I think it concerns what I was thinking that, yeah, I think people really met with God there. The only other thing I would say that bothered me a little was this sort of this revival tourism we had going. You know, I read reports of up 20 to 30 to 40 to 50,000 people descending on that little town. In the history of revival, that's kind of an anomaly. Um, usually revival subdivides and spreads. But I think in the information age, you know, the danger is on social media, we hear this news and people have the freedom of travel and, and the means to do it. And so revival's never really been a pilgrimage, you know. <laughs> It always, you know, you, you take what you experience there and you take it elsewhere and it's subdivides and it spreads. I think that there's some truth to that, but I also would have to say that the Cane Ridge revival yes. really was, there was a lot of tourism there because Cane Ridge, of course, here in Kentucky was an incredible revival. They said that there was probably 50,000 people that showed up to Cane Ridge. And of course, this was what I think in the 1700s and Cane Ridge they said that there were multiple preachers preaching at the same time, yeah. all there on Cane Ridge. Yeah. That was an aspect. I, I didn't see a lot of people have their phones out, playing on phones, distracted. But what I did see was, and I did it myself, was take a small, a short video and mm -hmm. then put my phone away, actually open it to my Bible app on my phone. I think that that's ultimately, Jeff, you spoke to the the shepherding of it. I witnessed that. The auditorium, the Hughes Auditorium, where the services were held, is an old auditorium. And my wife said, you think this uh, balcony is going to hold? And they even said, if, you, if you're going to jump around, come to the floor. Um, and so I, I have to appreciate that. They were trying to limit. I mean, you could see this was something that well, and I'm grateful for this. This was not something that was kind of premeditated. While we were there, there was a woman going around posting signs not to stand along the back wall in the balcony because they were, I think they were probably questioning, <laughs> will the balcony hold with an excess amount of people? Wilmore, Kentucky is in the middle of nowhere. Sure. It's a beautiful, beautiful little town. But I mean, I'm in Ashland, Kentucky, and it has about 20,000 people in it. And I'm told that there were up to 50,000 people uh, who had come to Wilmore. I mean, at one time to be there for this. And we praise God for that. I don't mean to criticize anybody for going. I mean, I was pretty tempted to go myself. If I wasn't recovering from knee surgery, I probably would have went, you know. Yeah. But um, I would say the degree in our information age is a little bit of a worry. But you remarked on the, the way this thing was shepherded. You know, I've been in a couple of seasons where you have a touch of uh, revival, and it's not easy to shepherd that. You know, I mean, there's stuff going on you can't explain, and there are things come to the surface that can be shocking as people confess sin and repent. And so I appreciate, you know, how those guys were doing that down there. It was encouraging to see because it was almost like they were trying to prevent the excesses, and there were those who, I'm told, showed up to try to capitalize on that. I mean, we've seen that on social media where people were trying to, in a way, hijack it, whether it's against or for, use it for their own agenda. Maybe that's always been the case with revivals. We've just not had something like this, you know, when we've had social media.
Coming up on April 25th at Tri-State Bible College, the second annual Appalachian Ministry Conference, fulfilling your ministry with hope in the darkness of Appalachia. The conference is a full day starting at 8 a.m. with keynote speaker Dean Falks from LifePoint Church in Columbus, Ohio, Dr. Jeff Van Gotham from Dallas Theological Seminary, and Dr. Yakubu Jakata from Tri-State Bible College, and storyteller Jacob Marshall. If you or your ministry is in Appalachia, and you're looking for a recharge as you're navigating, reaching a lost and sometimes dark community. This conference is designed specifically for you. The Appalachian Ministry Conference is at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio, Tuesday, April 25th. To register and for more information, visit tsbc.edu. That's tsbc.edu. the willingness to lavish time on God in our day and time for that many people to drop everything. I mean, everything. This thing went on for 24 hours for what, two straight weeks or more? That to me was one of the most astounding things that these people have stopped life for God. It ended because they ended it, not because it naturally ended. Because the, I think the crowds got so large that it was really impossible to handle in that little town. And so they ended it, which, again, I think that speaks to the role that the folks were trying to play to just shepherd that well. I think that was very wise because at some point you expect then the testimony to go outward in revival, to subdivide, to infect other churches and communities and schools. And so, again, you're exactly right. I think that was a very, very mature and wise move. I heard also, I don't know if this is true, I just heard this, the team leading it refused to let celebrity worship leaders or celebrity preachers come there and get on the platform, even though some of them, I I guess, wanted to do that. I won't mention names, but I did read about, quote unquote, famous worship leaders showing up and I'm so grateful that they kept it in the hands of the students. That's where the Holy Spirit started this thing. Let's let him continue to work through those whom he's chosen to steward it for the time being. I think that was really wise. And the ending of it, at first I was like, well, how do you end something like this? But <laughs> but I think, Jeff, what you said about, you know, this needs to subdivide, it needs to spread, people need to take what they've witnessed and experienced, and now they they need to go out and testify to it. That's how this sort of thing would spread. The whole Welsh revival was started by a group of young people, and they met with God, and then they just went out and started visiting churches, asked the pastors, can we have a youth meeting? Can we have a meeting? They just went from village to village to village all over Wales, and that carried that movement until it was something that was well beyond their control, you know. And so just the simple testifying of how you've experienced God, you've obeyed God, God has changed your life, you're lifting up the Lord Jesus. Evan Roberts, the young leader of the Welsh Revival, he only had one sermon, and it wasn't a very good one. (laughs) It was more of a testimony than a sermon, and he just shared that wherever he went, and that uh, really carried that movement in those days. Let's transition here and ask this. How should we pray for this movement uh, that has started? And 
related to that, how would we identify lasting fruit of true revival? For example, one of the things I've been praying for since about the middle of this thing, as a Bible college president, I'm praying for people to be called to ministry. That's what I've been praying. I wish that the Holy Spirit would stir these young people's hearts toward a call into vocational ministry. So what what other fruit, lasting fruit, how should we be praying for this as we go forward, Jeff? Well, I think we need to pray for the lost, you know, pray for a burden for lost people and the opportunity to testify before them. Pray for true transformation in our churches, you know, that they'll be no longer content with, you know, this institutionalized lukewarmness that we see everywhere, but that we begin to see serious praying Christians, sleeping Christians waking up, families changing. Praying for prayer, praying for a movement of prayer. Most great revivals inevitably become a movement of prayer. And then, of course, like you were saying, Rex, pray for a gospel-expanding movement. You know, one of the keys of revival is the recover of the authentic gospel. I would hope any pastors listening to this would begin to preach for the conviction of sin. Preach the gospel in a way to get around the defenses that people often put up. Lengthen your worship services. I mean, that might sound like a heresy these days, but, you know, help people to lavish time on God. Pray in the middle of your services. Ask people if they need to pray to come forward and be prayed for and to pray. Build up your prayer meetings. You know, call people to pray. Emphasize repentance. Maybe have a week of prayer, an extraordinary season where your church would lavish time on God. I mean, you can't work up revival, but you just try to create conditions where God can work and people can meet with God. You know, in terms of our society, given the godless condition of our country, it's going to really take something powerful to begin to impact our country. And so we really need to pray for a powerful, beyond these touches of revival, which are wonderful, for a powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to impact our culture, where people will get high on Jesus instead of weed. You know, in the Welsh Revival, all the taverns closed down. The police didn't have any work because people were changing and repenting. I mean, we're praying for something big here. You know, this takes a big prayer. And, you know, as pastors, we have to help our people understand these concepts and, you know, lead them into a real movement of prayer and the willingness to lavish time on revival. And of course, the whole thing hopefully will be word-centered, not necessarily experience-oriented, but word-centered, where the teaching and preaching of the word brings conviction of sin. People cry out for the grace of God and they are saved and changed and transformed. The lasting fruit, this is really helpful. It gives, I mean, personally, it gives me a direction of how do I steward this knowledge? It seems to be dividing and people are spreading. We're not ready for the Holy Spirit to be done with our country. We're not ready, Lord. We're not ready for you to be done. I mean, this caught us by surprise. Some of us have been praying for revival in our in our nation for decades. And to see this glimpse of it for really what's just a brief moment. Yeah. We want to say, Lord, we're not ready for you to be done yet. 
And I think these points help us to know, okay, this is how we need to pray. This is how we need to challenge our folks in church toward a word-centered, spirit-centered, prayerful experience of what God may be up to in these days. Yeah, Praise the Bible always begins in the church. They always have begun in the church with a turning to God, a repentance, a transformation within the church. Revival is something done to the church by God. It's not something we do to people, you know. And then if you really get into something that's powerful, it begins to take on a life of its own, and you're reaping where you haven't sown. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, revival is the countryside ablaze with the presence of God. And all of a sudden, it begins to sweep up the lost, then you're really going to see something, you know. But you're right. This little touch here has given us all hope. We're hopeful. We're thankful. It should stir us to deeper prayer. I remember the first few days I was hearing about this and reading about it, and I said to myself, yes, I need to redouble my prayers for this thing and for revival in our land. I had not heard something you said a moment ago about for this to spread to state and secular college campuses like campus ministries experience this on the campus where there where there are lost people and i want to pray for that too you know mm-hmm. the gospel expanding to these places we've heard a li- i don't know matt if you've heard a little bit about maybe a little bit of something going on at marshall have you heard of this i haven't heard of marshall i've heard about several other schools like cedarville university they had a big worship service on sunday in rep arena Listen, that's the high church of the Wildcats in Kentucky. And so uh, to have actual church go on in there is a pretty awesome thing to think of. A friend of mine sent me a podcast, and it was his son, uh, about his son, who's a baseball player at Western University. He is single-handedly leading that baseball team to follow after Jesus. Said the whole bu- the bus shows up for FCA because of this one kid and it's the whole baseball team at West Virginia University. And I mean, West Virginia was named the number one party school in the nation. And so to have that going on with the baseball team is pretty awesome. So there's some pretty great stuff going on around our country. Well, we uh, appreciate your time, Jeff. Remember, we're going to be all descending or ascending to or coming from the east and west to Tri-State Bible College on April 25th for our second annual Appalachian Ministry Conference. Pastor Jeff will be with us talking more about praying with hope in the darkness of a rural community. And so, Jeff, we're looking forward to having you. Thank you so much for your time. So what is the difference between little R revival and big R revival? How do we know when revival is really of God? And what does true revival actually look like? We trust that this episode of the Level Paths podcast was helpful, and if you have more questions than answers, reach out to Rex Howe or Dr. Matt Shamlin. They are excited to hear from you. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource, and no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president at Tri-State Bible College. You can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamblin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email matt.shamblin at tsbc.edu.
Level Paths podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.